And not only did he have a relationship with the government, but he had a role in the FBI. In this world, you look out for number one. If you, if any people, take that oath to the grave. These guys are on the streets, so they're involved in, in hustling. Right, welcome back into the OG podcast. I'm Scott Bernstein, along with my partner, Jimmy Bucciolato, and the always distinguished Roberto Beauchene behind the glass. Hey, now. Hey, now. <laughs> so uh, this week we have our first in-studio guest. Uh, I want to welcome to the OG podcast uh, retired U.S. Treasury agent Jim Sanderson. Um, thanks for joining us, Jim. Thank you for having me. Jim uh, recently published a book called Down the Rat Hole that does a an excellent deep dive into an unsolved triple murder from Metro Detroit back in 1985. Um, it's a, a triple murder that had a very personal connection to him. Both his brother and brother-in-law were, were slain in this uh, attack that uh, remains unsolved uh, 34 years later. And uh, But I think after... Jim's book, we definitely have a, a more clear idea of, of what happened, and it dispels a lot of the notions that were floating around at the time. A lot of the media reports um, back in 1985 were incorrect, and Jim's book really sets the record straight. So we're going to uh, talk to Jim um, about uh, the, the, the crime that was known as the Time Realty Building Massacre, um, the biggest crime in the history of Sterling Heights, Michigan. And uh, it took place at a, uh, a small office building on the corner of uh, 14 Mile and Hoover, right across the street from the Maple Lane Golf Course. And this was a, a big deal in terms of media coverage. For this neighborhood, a, a triple homicide is, is rather uncommon. This is a very, this very, very quiet bedroom <laughs> right. community. Right. Uh, not a lot of crime, not a, uh, you know, not, not, a, not a community that, that has a lot of... Um, you know, organized crime activity in right, it. Right. But this uh, this triple murder had a lot of earmarks of a gangland or a mob hit. Um, so, Jim, uh, welcome welcome aboard again. And um, maybe before we, we get into the the time realty um, murders, uh, maybe we just tell us a little bit about uh, your background and and how you ended up uh, becoming a U.S. Treasury agent. I was, um, or I have been. I was a federal agent for 26 years with the Criminal Investigation Division. My background is I have a uh, degree from U of M, but I have a master's degree in criminal justice at Michigan State. The type of work that I did with the Treasury involved uh, circumstantial evidence to prove intent. The book deals with an in-depth review of the evidence that I went through at the Sterling Heights Police Department thing I want to point out to start with was I had a dream on January 17th of 19 or 2018 and it dealt with my brother and as I was coming out of that dream kind of semi-conscious um, there was in the back of my mind the title already down the rat hole and there was a feeling that I needed to do something as a result of this dream Ironically, that dream was on my brother's birthday. There was a lot of different things uh, I've addressed in the book that led me to where we're at today. Um, doors opened up that I just was astounded. Uh, first of all, 
the uh, evidence at the Sterling Heights Police Department was closed until 2018. And at that time, I was volunteering at uh, Botsford, which is now Beaumont Hospital. I became pretty good friends with the uh, head of security. That's one of the things I did there. He had a contact that led me to the Sterling Heights Police Department, and I was able to go through this evidence. Uh, probably I went through this evidence three or four times, sometimes to 1130 at night. And as a result of that, I put the pieces together and came up with what I thought was a very clear picture of who did it and why it was done. So let's give the audience a quick little primer. Um, so this happened on April 3rd, 1985, um, and the, the three victims were all involved in, in the sports gambling business, but they were far from mobsters. They weren't really gangsters. They were small-town bookies that I think that, that their untimely and, and really grisly demise, I think, is a can be a cautionary tale about what a slippery slope uh, that type of business can be. So uh, Jim Sanderson's brother was Fred Sanderson. His brother-in-law was a guy named uh, Gene Manson. Gene Manson and Fred Sanderson were were small-time bookies, um, booking bets out of the Time Realty Building at 14 and Hoover. And Joe Termini was a kind of an innocent bystander that wasn't a, a, an intended target of this. Um, triple murder just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, but uh, he had some connections into certain factions of organized crime in Detroit, and and his inclusion um, in this murder would cause a lot of problems uh, uh, for the assailants down the line. But we'll get to that in a second. Uh, Jim, tell us about who uh, who 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 were Gene Manson and Fred Sanders. Uh, my brother Fred and I were about nine years apart in age, so kind of had separate lives as far as that goes. Fred uh, was operating a um, business that, with a partner, uh, they would go to auctions and purchase cars, and ref- refurnish them, rebuild them, and then resell them. His partner was very astute in mechanics, so that was mostly his life. He helped out at the uh, office doing some of the booking occasionally. So Fred, Gene, just to clarify, Gene Manson was the was the big bookie or relatively big bookie. Um, he was the the one that had started the business and then brought in his brother in law Fred Sanderson to kind of help him out and be kind of his right hand man. But both of them were they had other gigs going on. They they weren't well. Fred did at least. Fred had had another business, um, and I know at the time of their deaths, they were both looking to, to purchase a bar. Correct. Um, Fred and Gene originally met at a real estate office in 1979. The uh, economy, if you recall, was very bad, and I think that's when Gene got started in the bookie business. Um, he met a gentleman by the name of Hilf. You know, I'm sure, familiar with him. Right. So uh, it, it looks like from Jim's research that uh, Gene Manson was put into the or set up in the bookmaking business in Detroit by a Jewish gambling chief by the name of Alan, the General Hilf. And uh, Alan was a pretty uh, notorious gambling figure around the country, ran probably the biggest bookmaking operation um, in the state of Michigan and wa- was very connected into a mob crew in Detroit known as the Jackaloni crew led by the 
the, the two Jackaloni brothers who were the face of uh, of the mob activity in Detroit for you know over a half century, uh, Tony Jackaloni and Billy Jackaloni. How did how did Gene come to meet Alan Health? I mean, Alan Health is pretty significant underworld figure. He's not just a guy you would go up to and <laughs> introduce yourself and ask to get involved with. Any idea how they would acqu- become acquaintances? And no, as I said, I I didn't get involved with my brother too much along those lines. Uh, from what I recall, Fred and Gene met each other around 1979 in the real estate. Uh, there was an office called Condominium Realty, and they became very good friends. So they palled around together, and then I think as a result of that, when Gene needed help doing the booking, Fred would help out. Mm-hmm. As far as where Gene started, I'm guessing it was probably around that time, 79, probably through mutual friends. Um, I had another friend that I grew up with that kind of walked a very thin line. He had a legitimate business, but he did booking and did other things. And, and I suspect from that circle, sure. Gene learned uh, about Hilf. That makes sense, right? They were networking. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, to what extent were you aware of their involvement in illegal activities? So bookmaking, some people think it's a harmless vice. It is nevertheless an illegal, illicit business. How? How? It's just sort of interesting because you're involved in law enforcement. and I cover this in the book. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like marijuana today, and it's kind of like uh, prohibition. The bookmaking operation now is getting close to being totally legal. That's right. So when you look back in retrospect, you know, it wasn't that big of a vice unless you were really heavy into the, the mob or the mafia. Gene had uh, clients that were basically attorneys, doctors, businessmen. They'd go out and play a, a round of golf. Gene was an excellent golfer. And they'd go out and play a round of golf. And during that time, somebody would pay somebody or they'd go out to dinner or they'd have each other over for cards with their families or their wives. I was out of the Treasury Department for four years, from 1979 to 1983. So during that time, I briefly learned more about Gene. He was known as Gino, a little bit of what he was doing. When I got back into the government, as you were pointing out, my attitude at that time was that wasn't my forte as far as uh, going after bookies. Um, Secondly, my understanding was for Gene's situation, he obtained what they call a a, a tax stamp. And as far as the uh, Internal Revenue Service was concerned, if you had a tax stamp and reported your wages, the federal government wasn't interested in you. Mm-hmm. And then the le- final thing was you just w- you declared yourself on the on the form as a professional gambler. Correct. And the last thing was I was related through marriage, and uh, it just didn't seem like a good idea to be turning my brother-in-law would benefit in no <laughs> of, okay. of course. And if we're talking about you know taking bets on on golf games, I mean that that that's outside the purview of the federal government. I mean that that's just not right. It's just not something the feds are going to investigate. Uh, anyhow, at the local well, they were, level, they were booking bets. I mean, I think some of their bets were as small as twenty five, fifty bucks. Correct. That went up to you know guys betting a thousand, two thousand dollars. But they they weren't uh, they weren't you know in the deep end of the pool per se. Uh, they weren't tough guys. They weren't gangsters. Um, they were running a, a a pretty a relatively small 
bookmaking operation in the suburbs dealing with all white collar people. Um, so it didn't seem like you were dipping your toe into dangerous ground. But correct. But as as I said, you know, earlier, I think this is a cautionary tale of how that world can be a very slippery slope. And, you know, you, you can't get half pregnant. Yeah, I think before we go unpack how that happened, let's let's fast forward to the, the day of the crime, because I think it's interesting. It sounds like these guys are, are involved in some things that, let's be honest, a lot of people are involved in, right? Attorneys, doctors, and all of a sudden, then they end up dead. So and they end up dead in an incredibly gruesome yeah. way that would uh, lend people to believe that they were big-time underworld figures because of the, the style of the murder. It was a very... A very violent, very vicious crime where they were killed execution style um, and, uh, you know, a, a triple murder just in general really kind of shocks the conscience. So, yeah, if you could walk us through that when you first found out. So this was a, so this was April 3rd, 1985. Uh, it was two days removed from the end of the NCAA tournament, a basketball tournament um, with a, uh, that ended with a huge upset. Georgetown and Patrick Ewing were upset by Villanova um, in the 1985 national championship game. I believe it was played in Lexington, Lexington Kentucky, um, and it was one of the biggest upsets in sports history, let alone on college basketball history. And this was a couple days later. And it's like, you know, kind of the end of their busy period. Um, if you're a bookmaker, you're, you're really, you have a lot of heavy business during football season. And then you, you got a kind of a significant uh, uh, set of clients for basketball season. But then things kind of start to slow down. Um, I think in the spring and summer, not as many people bet on baseball. So this was really the end of their busy season. And they're kind of doing some house cleaning at the office on April 3rd. And then on April 4th, the bodies are found. And kind of let, let's kind of talk about when you heard about it and what was the what, what was the, the fallout from from your family? Well, I was at work. I got a phone call from my wife that they had both been killed. First thing came into my mind was an automobile accident or something. I said, "What happened?" They said they were shot. So at that point, I left the office. I went to the uh, the scene. My two sister in laws were there. I had, uh, and this led to another problem with the um, law enforcement. I went to the scene and uh, told both of my sister-in-laws not to speak to anybody, and I was referring to the news, the press, and I apparently was overheard, and it was interpreted as don't talk to the police. We went back over from there, my wife and myself. I had to tell my mother, who had lost her husband six months prior, and then my sister-in-law and my wife were together. I went back to the office after that. They had removed the bodies. I was able to enter the uh, entranceway of the office. I had been to that office only twice. There was no gambling activity going on at either one of those occasions. But I remember my brother-in-law, as much as I knew him, was a businessman, basically. He, as you pointed out, he wasn't operating some bookie operation in an alley. And when I looked in the office building, I checked, or I happened to notice on the desk was a plate with uh, what appeared to be cocaine. You're talking about when you entered the crime scene. Correct. When I entered that, I got to the office, to the doorway, and I was able to look into the office. And on the desk was a small plate of, of what appeared to be cocaine. And the thing that immediately hit me was, that's not like him. He took care of business. He didn't operate an operation out of office where they're snorting coke, drinking 
and having a good time. He would uh, do the booking, from my understanding, and go home. And later the toxicology reports would show that there was no cocaine in anyone's <clears throat> system, and it would appear that the... Uh, the 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 planting, or it would appear that this was a planting of cocaine at the scene to kind of throw off investigators, and it did to the point where a lot of the reporting at the time um, in the press was that this was a drug deal gone wrong. Correct, which was <laughs> inaccurate, pretty you know, and, and in some ways you know slanderous. <laughs> uh, in the book, I've got copies of the uh, newspaper articles that allude to that. And, uh, well, I remember there was one that that you know said according to a source, uh, Manson and Sanderson were big time drug dealers. So I mean, it, it kind of the story kind of really started to kind of run amok to uh, you know and deviate from 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 the truth. Correct. So the Easter holiday was that weekend. Talk about the 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 direct aftermath after you, you've discovered what happened. Your family is has is is digesting the news. What. What's going on the next couple of weeks when the investigation gets started from your end at that time? And then we'll go to what you learned, you know, 30 years later investigating it. Well, first of all, I spent uh, Easter weekend in a funeral home. That following Monday, I went into the uh, Sterling Heights Police Department thinking there was something wrong seeing that cocaine on the desk. Being in law enforcement, you know, you're not really terrified of other law enforcement people. And it's a little bit like a, a fraternity or you professional courtesy. Correct. I went in asking to talk to the lead detective and I was kind of stonewalled. Now, again, as I said earlier, I told nobody to, to talk to anybody and they stonewalled me. Finally, uh, I got irritated and I said, why don't you uh, have the lead detective come and see me or bring him in or whatever. And Three or four minutes later, the lead detective walked in, and we bumped heads. And he started giving me the third degree. You know, I was a federal agent. It was I ever investigated myself, and yada, yada, yada. So, Finally, they, so they start looking at you as there's a possible tie-in or you had knowledge that you're not sharing with them. Correct. So, I mean, that's just kind of adding insult to injury. You're already dealing with the death of your brother and your brother-in-law. Your family's in chaos. Uh, you just want to get answers. Meanwhile, the the... The law enforcement, the, the people that are investigating this are, at, at least at first, putting a microscope on, on, your, on you. Absolutely. So I finally said, well, do what you got to do and get it done and maybe I can help you. <clears throat> I walked out and I never talked to him again. And then at one point, wasn't there an instance in your book you describe where uh, an undercover uh, police officer approaches you acting like he was some concerned citizen trying to garner information from you at that point this was uh probably a couple of months later uh as a result obviously of this happening i was taken out of my position at work and put on a project till they did a background investigation i mean you're basically put on a desk to kind of do busy work until we could clear you exactly and during that time i came out of the uh, federal building one afternoon for lunch and a person in approached me. Now, at that point, there was a federal grand jury going on for a couple of these individuals of interest. And this gentleman led me to believe that he was a part of that federal grand jury. He sympathized with my state. And we took a walk down around Detroit, and I was sharing my ideas, trying to figure out what was going on and why, especially. 
And then when I went through the uh, the reports at the Sterling Heights Police Station, I discovered that this was a Sterling Heights detective wearing a wire trying to uh, entrap me is what it amounted to. So it, it, it looked like even before you started to dive in to the investigation yourself, you kind of were aware that part of this investigation was kind of going off the rails and they were looking at, you know, maybe the, the wrong angles. You mentioned a, a, a figure by the name of Jerry Atkins. Now, it appears that Jerry Atkins might have been uh, the getaway driver or one of the getaway drivers for for the uh, for the triple murder, as well as a go-between um, for, the, let's say, the conspirators and the actual hitmen. Uh, and it, it, it appears from, or it doesn't appear, it, it shows from your investigation that Jerry Atkins showed up at the Sterling Heights Police Department um, within a week of, of the crime taking place. Correct. And started divulging some forms of information. And it appears that he was like trying to get a leg up on what was being investigated because he was worried that he had been identified. One of the interesting parts of, uh, of how this whole thing went down was when the assailants were leaving the scene of the crime, one of them almost got into a real serious car accident speeding out of the, out of the driveway onto 14 Mile. And the car that they almost ran into um, got an ID uh, on the car, am I right? What happened is they came flying out of there. Atkins, I believe, was the second car out. He almost got T-boned by a uh, elderly, or not an elderly lady, but a uh, lady that was coming eastbound on 14 Mile Road. I suspect that he may have glanced and recognized her, or thought he recognized her, and as a result of that, he was concerned about whether he was going to get identified. He got spooked. Exactly. And he was kind of a a, a, a low-level mob crony, kind of a wannabe um, that did various busy work uh, tasks, driving people from here to there, um, passing messages and whatnot. I suspect going back through the evidence, too, uh, he was concerned about whether he was identified and I think he was also prompted by one of the lead suspects to find out what went on. And as time went on, just to kind of keep a, uh, on top of what the police were finding. So what did he, what, what did he divulge uh, in his, his first couple meetings with, with uh, Australian Heights uh, Police? He came, as you pointed out earlier, I think about uh, a week after this happened. I think it was six days. I think it was April 9th. Correct. He walked into the uh, Sterling Heights Police Department said that he had uh, knowledge of what went on through another source. He called him Ears or JJ, and as it turned out, that was him. He gave them uh, enough information to be believable. He indicated that they had all been shot behind the ear. So he knew stuff about the, the murder scene and the crime that normal everyday civilians wouldn't have known that hadn't made the press yet. Correct. So he showed his the validity of what he was saying to the police by giving them information that only someone that was involved in the crime would have known. Correct. As a result of that, he then suggested that there was um, bookies that were willing to come forward, but they were afraid that they're all uh, targets of a hit. And if a uh, police would uh, turn that away from them and have it, have it more towards narcotics, 
uh, they might come forward. So as a result of that, the police planted a phony story in the news within days indicating that it was a uh, drug-related and that my brother and brother-in-law were big drug dealers, as you pointed out, and uh, led them led the police down the wrong track right off the get-go. My understanding of the of the crime scene that money was stolen. So wasn't it possible that this was um, an armed robbery gone bad? That uh, people know there's a bookmaking operation there. They're going to have a lot of cash. Let's go in steal the cash. Something goes wrong, shoot all the guys and get out. Was that under consideration at the time that, that this was not a drug deal, not a mob hit, but armed robbery gone bad? Now, this is, this is reflecting on the evidence that I went through. Sure. Okay, I knew, I was aware personally that my brother had at least $50,000 back in the 70s. Now, this was in the 80s. Quite conceivably, that from that time forward, he had at least a hundred thousand. As far as it being a robbery or a hit, I went back and forth on that as to whether it was just a robbery that went bad. My conclusion has been it was a hit, but it was set up because of the money. They set this up. My brother and brother-in-law were supposed to look at a bar that morning or that day, and. The gentleman that was supposed to meet with them and go over to see the bar owner, et cetera, didn't show. Later, they questioned him, and the only question they asked him is, were you supposed to show a bar? And he says, yeah, but I slept in. I worked late, and I slept in. Now, as a professional investigator myself, you don't stop there. It's the who did you see, when were they supposed to see him, what was the name of the bar, all this information. The police never asked them any of that, okay? So they had this large amount of money. They then went back to the office that afternoon, and I'm guessing they had between $100,000 and $200,000 in my brother's briefcase. So that was intentional, not only kill him, but to take that money. That's a result of my brother-in-law, and I don't want to go too far ahead, had borrowed some money, it wasn't paid back in the time frame that this individual thought it should be. He felt he was disrespected and it became a grudge. This guy, our main suspect, is associated with the was the a mob. Was a Jackalonia soldier by the name of Paulie Leggio um, who was tied in the Jackalonia crew. Gene Manson's relationships with Alan Health, who set him up in the, the bookmaking business. And then, he, and then through Alan Health, it looks like he met Paulie Leggio um, and he had relationships, friendships, some level of, of, of business contact with them in the sense that they were possibly silent partners uh, in, in his bookmaking operation. And everything was copacetic for five, six years. And then some cracks in their relationship start to appear in late 1984 into early 1985. And it looks like that Gene had falling outs with both Leggio and Hilf, um in the months leading up to his murder, which might have which probably did kind of set the scene for, for what happened. Correct. They uh, became friends. In fact, Lesio uh, was uh, in Gino's wedding. And the other one, one of the other things I recall is they went down, Gino and his wife went down to Florida to see Lesio's. Gino's wife was pregnant at the time, and uh, Lesio's gave them or sold them some uh, bedroom furniture. 
So they were in good terms until this falling out, as you said. Um, but then it became very personal and very, uh, very nasty. So I think let's the, the the first part of the falling out happened with Health from from your investigation. So uh, Alan Health had had set up uh, Gene Manson in the bookmaking business. Alan Health would actually bet through Gene Manson because he was a big better himself. In addition to being a handicapper and a bookmaker, uh, Gene would take Alan's action. Um, I think he would also use Alan sometimes as a layoff. It appears that there was some type of dust up between Alan Health and Gene Manson over a fixed card game. I was out of the government from 79 to 83, and I recall Gino telling me this, all right? He had attended a, a game at Hilt's. So in addition to being a bookmaker, Alan Health was also running a floating backdoor casino um, that would... Would, would set up shop at different locations every couple days, whether they be in a basement of a resident. Sometimes it was in Allen's basement. Sometimes it was in just kind of random houses around Metro Detroit. Sometimes it was held in the estates, in the mansions of uh, professional athletes in Detroit, guys like Isaiah Thomas, the NBA Hall of Fame point guard uh, from the Detroit Pistons, Tommy Hearns, the, the, the great boxer from Detroit. They would actually host some of these casino nights for the mob uh, and within these casino nights, a portion of the games that were going on were fixed. The, the, deck, the deck was stacked against a lot of the, the, the commoners that were coming into this world and uh, are coming in, into, this, uh, into these games. And, and in reality, a lot of these guys were kind of lured in as marks um, and, and swindled. Uh, not, not everything was on the up and up. And it looks like Gene took umbrage with uh, uh, going to one of Allen's games and, and he believing he got, he got ripped off. Gina told me that. Yeah. Okay. So I, that's direct evidence. Right. <laughs> and as later, uh, through the investigation and through a source at the uh, federal level, uh, it was pointed out they were doing a investigation on Hilth, and that's where they discovered that he had uh, cameras in his basement and he was in communication with somebody else that could read the Mark's hand, and that's how they burned him. Um, this this was a common tactic uh, in Alan Hilf's crew. The group of people he hung out with, were, they were all called the, the Capitol Street Social Club crew. Um, it was a group of non-Italians, uh, Jews, Middle Easterners, that were a, a, a gambling clique and were a very successful gambling clique and made a lot of money for the, for the Jackaloni brothers. And uh, it looks like this fallout with Alan Hilf would kind of foreshadow um, the next couple months. And without Alan Hilf supporting uh, Gino anymore, that kind of left him exposed for someone like Paulie Leggio to do uh, what he did to him. It was also my understanding, I don't know when it occurred, Gino was able to get uh, a better line out of New right. York. From Jim's investigation, it appears that um, Gene Manson's bookmaking operation took some losses at the end of football season and was in need of some money. Uh, I think it was during basketball. Okay, well, this was like February. Uh, Gino had a, a ledger of who his betters were. Of course, it was, you know, uh, coded. But it was obvious that he had borrowed $50,000 from Lizio. And that sparked this not being paid back in time. Then it sparked Lizio's anger. 
and then there were threats and, and these were these were friends i mean legio was in gene's wedding so well not only that now again this was in the interview of my sister-in-law gene's wife and they brought his name up as potentially a um, person of interest that may have been involved and her reaction in, in the report was, no, he, he's, he's a hothead, but he just uh, blows off. He wouldn't do something like that. Now, that's Gene's wife interpretation of this guy. Also, there were other people that I uh, looked at as far as the, the testimony. And he had a reputation. And when you met him, oh, he's a friendly, nice guy. But as time went on, he showed a darker side. Do you remember him from his associations with your brother and brother-in-law? There's two things I found of interest. Um, one was Gino's wedding, and he told me later on about this, that uh, he was talking to Lesio. Lesio saw me and said to keep me the hell away from him. <laughs> and he, Gino thought it was funny, okay? Yeah. The second time, I don't th recall whether I met him at that wedding or not. The second time, which is ironic, when my brother was killed, I did not want to see him in a casket. So I waited until they shut the casket, and I went in uh, to the room shortly before the funeral procession. And as I'm standing there, who walks in but Lesio? Wow. Now, I had no knowledge of what went on or anything else. But I remember making some sort of a comment. I hope whoever did this hangs or does something, whatever. And uh, it's just kind of ironic. I'm saying it to the guy that killed my brother, as far as I'm concerned. So, so he takes out a $50,000 loan. And I think he, 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 he says he's going to pay it back in six weeks. And he had trouble paying it back in the time frame that, that, that he had allotted. And then at that point, it appears that Leggio said, well, the, the 50000 that that you thought you owed me, now I'm quadrupling it, and you owe me 200 There was verbal threats over the phone uh, at a well-known restaurant, Pauly, uh Mr. Paul's Chop House. Right. Lesio sent uh, this Bob LaPuma over, who is a known leg breaker. Uh, Scott can maybe give you a... Bobby the Animal LaPuma, one of the Jackaloni's main enforcers, not someone that you want to meet in a dark alley. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> And then Lesio himself appeared one night. Now, this, again, some of this stuff, I look at the evidence, which supports what I have personal knowledge of, because my brother told me about this incident, where uh, Lesio walked in, he pulled a gun on, on Gene, threatened him. Knowing my brother, uh, what he, he told Lesio, put it away or use it. At that point, Lesio had to do one or the other, so... He uh, stormed out, but on the way out in the parking lot, he uh, took the, I'm guessing, the butt of the gun. He knocked the side rearview mirror off of Gene's car and broke the windshield with the butt of the gun. So, I mean, that's a demonstration of his temper. Um, so on the east side, though, at that time, like, Mr. Paul's Chop House would have been like the Copacabana, where, like, you know, a lot of these organized a lot of wise crime guys. figures would hang out there. Yeah, and to be at the Religiously. Bar, yeah. Well, the other thing is, too, they, they all go to the nicest restaurants. <laughs> and today, Mr. Paul's is still a nice restaurant. Uh, they hung out at a place on the, on the uh, west side in Southfield. Oh, Dimitri's. Dimitri's. You know, these are upscale restaurants that they hung out at. And at that uh, Mr. Paul's, 
Lesio was overheard shouting, which again is in the reports. He was overheard uh, shouting uh, threats to Jean. And ironically, I was there not too long ago and talked to uh, the owner of Mr. Paul's. And I asked him about, did they have a phone booth in here back in the 80s? And he kind of smiled. He says, yeah, over there. You know, and he, he showed where the, uh, indicated where the, the phone was. And I, I kind of led the conversation around to Lesio. And indirectly, he said that he recalled Lesio shouting threats in that phone on more than one occasion. <laughs> so this, there are multiple eyewitnesses, it sounds Correct. like. Correct. Yes. Do you think um, your uh, brother and brother-in-law were aware of the severity of these of these threats? Obviously, he's Lapuma. I mean, these, these guys aren't, you know, to be trifled with. Do you think he was aware of the severity? Yes, they were apparently in, in a bar shortly after this threat from Lapuma, and I think they were asking him, you know, is this serious? And he says Lapuma was nobody to mess with. <laughs> Right. And, and Lapuma had been a suspect in, in some gangland slains in the past, so he had a reputation. But I don't think they were aware of the severity to the point where they're going to get killed. I wonder if at that point the people that are demanding the money, it starts off Leggio, then Lapuma gets involved. And then my understanding is that Vito Giacalone gets involved. And now we're now we're talking about we're talking about upper echelon here. They, these are not just like, as you point out, street alley gamblers. I mean, Vito Giacalone is a high-ranking member of Italian Cosa like na- Nostra. Like nationally. Right, right. With, with a, a reputation that, that spans the country. Right. Uh, for, a suspect in the Hoffa disappearance. Right. Someone who's known for, for volatility and someone that, frankly, was a suspect in probably two dozen murders. So if this gets his attention, we're talking, like, as you point out, Scott, DEFCON 4. Yeah. Right? So he gets summoned. <laughs> so Gene got summoned to Billy Giacalone's house at some point in the weeks leading up to his murder. Again, see, some of this, it's just, uh, I remember being told that he went to see Giacalone. I don't, I wasn't aware which one it was, but I also was aware that he left uh, upset he had a, a small problem with his with his stomach uh, indigestion or whatever, and his wife was concerned about him drinking too much, and this kind of started that all over again too because he was upset. But yeah, he I know from the streets and what I heard at that time that he had went to see uh, he had gone to see Jackaloni and left upset. Uh, Gene and Freddie might have had something to do with. Jackaloni pressuring Leggio. Uh, Leggio had recently opened up kind of a satellite office in Florida uh, and was moving cocaine uh, up from Florida to Michigan uh, and as well as, I believe, opening up a sports book and a, uh, a loan sharking business in Florida where he was making money and the Jackalonis were squeezing him for tribute from their Florida operation. Some of the evidence showed that he had something going on in Florida. And uh, it, 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 from talking to people that I spoke to, it looked like Leggio wanted to leverage the loan that he had out from Manson as a way to appease the Jackalones and pay them tribute from, his, from the Florida operation. And it might be that Billy, Billy Jackalone summoned Gene there to, I mean, 
I'm guessing Billy might not have even known all of sure. the specifics right. of what we're going Probably on. Not. He just yeah. knew that Paulie Leggio was telling him that Manson had taken out a loan and, right. and wasn't paying it back. Right. Either that or that he was um, not paying tribute money. Right. Because Gene had been protected by Leggio and Hilf. Um, and that probably put him in a situation where he wasn't having to always kick up. They were taking percentages of the, the business that they owned and kicking it up. Correct. And then when they were removed from the scene, uh, there was no protection, and that money that was being kicked up probably wasn't being kicked up anymore, and at that point, it, it falls on, on Gene. Correct. The, the suspects in your mind decide to um, execute these individuals. There's no, there's no turning back. We're not waiting for the money. Walk us through your theory in terms of how the, how the hit went down. Right, how the hit went down, the suspects, how they go through the decision-making process to take these guys out. Freddie and, and Lizio did not like each other. So the hit on my brother was probably more of a anger than being involved with the uh, gambling so much. The gambling was more Gino, and it was the, uh, the $50,000 loan that he thought he should have gotten back sooner, didn't. Didn't get any respect. He had a little man's personality. And as a result of that, he decided he was going to put a hit out. It appears that that the the hitmen that were retained for this job came from a African-American um, subunit of, of the Jackaloni crew that was known as the Murder Row Gang. It was made to look like a gangland hit. And that was their style, of course, the, turning the temperature down in the room, opening up the refrigerator, uh, that type of stuff. They, they sh- shot behind the ear with a twenty-two. Those are gangland-style type hits, and I think that's what they wanted to leave. I think personally it was more a vendetta. He wanted to kill him, just as simple as that. Uh, there were no arrests. Um, it appeared that the getaway driver, um, or what the, the reputed getaway driver, Jerry Atkins, um, the, the government was trying to leverage cooperation from him because at the time, even though he had given up information privately to the police, he wasn't willing to you know, take a, take a witness stand or whatnot. And when he got called in front of the grand jury, he possibly perjured himself uh, and he was brought up on perjury charges and acquitted. If he, had been, if he had been convicted of those perjury charges, we could have very easily gotten an indictment in this case. Would you say that's true? Yes, and going back to Lesio and what you were talking about is there was testimony to federal agents by Lesio. He wouldn't talk to him, but he made the comment, you wouldn't believe how hot it is on the street for me. So going back to what you said, they were putting pressure on him shortly after this thing. He couldn't, according to the records, he couldn't get coke. Yeah, when I heard that in the—, in the so Paulie Leggio was only free for another couple years. He was eventually locked up in 1987 for actually attacking uh, an associate that had gone in front of the grand jury. Two um, associates, and they went into the witness protection program. To- so he was picked up, I believe, in April of 87 and ended up dying in prison in 92. Um, La Puma ended up going to prison for the, the coke dealing uh, that was going on in Florida, and he did, I think, a, a decade-long sentence. But... Um, it appears that at the very end, Pauly Leggio, I, I heard the term, quote unquote, he was on, a, he was on an island. That those last couple of years, he was really on the outs with the Jackalones, um, having trouble uh, getting uh, supply sources for his drug dealing operation, and was really kind of feeling the heat from including 
uh, Terramini in this hit when he wasn't supposed to? Well, the records indicated that when he went into prison, and he wasn't in the best of health, and uh, somebody took a baseball, whacked him alongside the head, and blinded him in one of his eyes. In prison? Yeah. Wow. And the report was he, he got that playing handball. <laughs> then there was also speculation that uh, he um, died of a heart attack. And he, again, this is from a source I know, said that he complained of, of a chest pains in prison and laid on a, gar a garney, gurney for hours and was finally transferred to the hospital outside of the Milan. And on that gurney, he had the heart attack. Now, there was some indications, um, some of us know, that you can give somebody a heart attack by injecting them with a needle with air. And there's speculation that's exactly what happened to him. They, they took him out. And one of the things that I remember my sister-in-law telling me, um, she still was talking to some of these people after this had happened, and obviously somebody that was associated with the, the uh, mafia, and they told her, because we were trying to figure out what was going on. We didn't, you know, what happened and why. She said, she was told, leave it alone. We'll take care of it. <laughs> so, wow. So this was just, this was a riveting uh, interview, uh, just a, a very compelling uh, case of an unsolved murder here in Detroit. You want to plug your yeah, book? Yeah, I can't, I can't wait to read it. I'm all in I want to add great. one other thing. Sure. Yeah. My brother solved his own murder. Um, in the back of this book, if you get it, there's a letter from him to me. Uh, very moving. He uh, he grabbed a nylon off the person that killed him. He had it in his hand when they found him. That's never been told. And the DNA pointed to Red Freeman. So uh, that who's took, a member of the murder road? Took group? two years after this investigation started. I don't want to badmouth law enforcement, but unfortunately, the uh, two people that led this investigation in Sterling Heights had no knowledge of how to do a criminal investigation. I was recently told by somebody who bought the book, who did the evidence at Sterling Heights, and told me that they had two people that had transferred from the Detroit Police Department that were familiar with homicides, but didn't use them. Where, where, can, where can people find your book? If they'll go to the website, tacabusbooks.com, they can buy the book or they can do the uh, digital read. Down the rat hole. Well, this was great. Uh, just, uh, uh, just, a, just a fascinating tale. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a, it's a tragic tale. A lot of personal um, connections and feelings uh, for Jim. Obviously, he, he had a, a brother and a brother-in-law that were, were slain in this. We, we really appreciate you coming in here, and uh, this has been a, just a, a, a very um, compelling conversation, and I think people would really enjoy the book. Go out and get it at tacklebusbooks.com. We wish you luck. You're always welcome to come back here on the OG and, and chop it up with us and promote anything you got going on. Um, go out and check out uh, Down the Rat Hole at tacklebusbooks.com. Jim Sanderson, retired U.S. Treasury agent. You've said it all. You've done it all. Uh, <laughs> given us a, a, a great episode here of the OG, and, and, and we're, we're, uh, we have a lot of gratitude for it. I appreciate uh, allowing me to come in and divulge what I have. Thanks, Thank Jim. Thank you.